0: I heard this joke from Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias, and I think it's, it's actually pretty good. Uh, he's a great storyteller if you've ever heard of, uh, of him, and he's going to tell it better than I do, but I'd like to share that with you. And it's about Sam, who is taking an oral ordination uh, exam to be a pastor. And someone asked him, Sam, can you tell me the parable of the good Samaritan? Yes, sir, I will, sir. Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked him. And as he went on, he didn't have no money, and he met the Queen of Sheba, and she gave him a thousand talents of gold and a thousand changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot and drove furiously, and when he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair got caught on the limb of that tree, and he hung there many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, and he ate 5,000 loaves of bread and two fishes. One night when he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and fell on stony ground, but he got up and went on, and it began to rain, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and he hid himself in a cave, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. Then he went on till he met a servant who said, come, take supper at my house, and he made an excuse and said, no, I won't, I have married a wife and can't go. And the servant went on into the highways and into the hedges and compelled him to come in. After supper, he went on and came down to Jericho. When he got there, he looked up and saw that old Queen Jezebel sitting down way up high in the window. And she laughed at him, and he said, throw her down out there. And they threw her down, and he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down again, seventy times seven. And of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 basketfuls, besides women and children. And they said, blessed are the peacemakers, P-I-E-C-E, now whose wife do you think she will be on that judgment day? Now that's really clever. Uh, That's really clever. And Sam had a lot of biblical content uh, in his answer, but he was mixed up. He was mixed up, and he didn't actually know the truth. Many people know some things about the Bible. They know some things about God, but they don't actually know the truth or how the pieces of the gospel fit together and work out in their life. I think we often uh, underestimate how much mixed-up doctrine mixes up life. Satan is waging war against your mind. He wants you to believe lies in order to distract you from Christ and his joy and send you spiraling into unbelief, apostasy, and ultimately hell. See, Satan knows that if he can confuse you about biblical truth, you won't be able to enjoy God and his good and holy gifts. So Satan mixes error with truth in a a glitzy sideshow, Of deception which tempts us to look away from the infinitely spectacular main exhibition of God's glory in Jesus Christ. It often happens for people that Satan's delusion of the truth becomes so engrossing they come to prefer his sideshow to God's truth. Every lie dances and dangles from the marionette strings in the hands of Satan himself. Don't watch that entertaining show. Because there's a homicidal con artist directing it. How important is it for you and me to believe and know the truth? Friends, it's life or death. Satan's lies are so spellbinding that if the truth doesn't abide in you... Like the rats behind the Pied Piper, you will follow Satan away from God to your own eternal destruction. Jesus said that by abiding in his word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sound doctrine is essential a, uh, a central theme in 1 Timothy. How important is biblical truth in our lives? Well, considering that people inside the church depart from the Christian faith, I'd say truth is really, really important to us. But even more, believing and knowing biblical truth frees us to enjoy God and His good and holy gifts with gratitude that glorifies Him. People misunderstand Christianity. Following Jesus, listen closely, following Jesus is not about denying ourselves pleasure, though there is an element of that, but rather finding utmost pleasure in God and his gifts that he gives us to enjoy with much gratitude. So believing and knowing the truth is integral to our gladness and our gratitude. I hope to show you three things this morning. Number one, how some people depart from the Christian faith and walk away from God. Two, how Jesus protects you with truth so you, de- so you don't, rather, depart from the Christian faith and walk away from God. And three, how Jesus liberates you with truth to gratefully enjoy God and his good and holy gifts for his glory. Here's the point. Though people inside the church will depart from the faith, Jesus will protect you with the truth so that you can revel in God and his good gifts with much gratitude for his glory. So that's the idea. But we begin with a sobering truth. Some people in the church will depart from the faith. I take Paul to mean... Uh, Some people will depart from or walk away from the doctrines of the Christian faith. And ultimately, God himself. Departing from the faith is walking away from the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's abandoning God's good law. It's abandoning God's gospel. Ultimately, to depart from the faith is to walk away from Christ, the mystery of godliness. The apostates who walk away may continue to profess Christ. They may not actually realize that they have abandoned the faith, but their beliefs and their behaviors show that they have turned away from Christ. Their departure may be atheism, agnosticism. Another religion maybe withdraw withdrawal from their faithful local church. Or perhaps a covert desertion of of several core teachings of the Christian faith. Whatever form apostasy takes, the Spirit of God tells us very clearly in His Word that people from within the church will walk away. Will abandon Christ. Paul said in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now Paul didn't tell us, How the Spirit says it, but he says it. Jesus said by the Spirit, many will fall away. That's Jesus. Strikingly, before Paul left Ephesus, he told the elders by the Spirit, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We should expect to see professing Christians abandon Christianity, abandon the Christian faith. It has happened, and the Spirit says that it will continue to happen. And I understand later times to mean the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we are in the later times right now, and people are walking away. So does this mean, then, That true Christians can walk away from God and lose their salvation. Now, I don't have time to develop this, nor is it Paul's point in this passage, but genuine Christians cannot apostatize and lose their salvation. Hang with me. God's saving grace is God's keeping grace, is God's sanctifying grace, is God's glorifying grace. Along with many other clear passages, 1 Corinthians 1.8 says that our precious Lord Jesus Christ sustains us to the end, to the end. So when a churchgoer departs from the faith, it doesn't mean the gospel has failed. It doesn't mean the gospel is ineffective. It, it doesn't mean their outward profession was an inward transformation, Think about that Now how How could anyone In their right mind possibly Turn away from the beautiful Truth of the supremacy of Jesus Christ Verse 1 By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits And teachings of demons Friends This is, this is a bit heavy This is a bit heavy Because it's true uh, so pay, pay close attention to, here, uh, to this. People depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings, doctrines of demons. Satan is a master of disguise. He's very clever. He uses sleight of hand really well. He runs conferences under the banner of Christian He puts bestsellers on Christian bookstore shelves. He speaks on Christian radio and television. And his ideas have been accepted by mainline Christian denominations and some very large prominent churches. Subtle deception is his craft. When we hear the word demonic, we think about things like the exorcist or sacrificing goats or witchcraft or something like that. We don't often think of the newest Christian bestseller or TV preachers, but Satan and his demons love to blend a dash of error with the truth so that the truth is poisoned enough to be deadly, but not too much as to be easily detected. I submit this to you. Any teaching that does not align with the sound biblical doctrine is a lie straight from Satan himself. Consider, carefully consider this, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise, Paul says, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness a master of disguise, a swindler par excellence. Satan can look like an angel of light. He can deceive with such craft that his lies actually sound like the truth. That's what he did in Eden to bring our demise. Now, atheism is obvious. But what about when someone says... That God is one person who manifests himself in one of three forms, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. That's called modalism, a false teaching which twists the Trinity... ...and rejects the idea of three eternally existing, equal, and yet distinct persons in the one God. Modalism is the theology espoused in the book, The Shack. One of the best-selling Christian novels of all time. It sold over 22 million copies. The Shack also confuses biblical submission and espouses God submitting to human beings suggests man needs to forgive God, misrepresents God's absolute sovereignty, belittles biblical authority and sufficiency, and flirts with universalism. The book is chock full of absolute heresies. Many Christians rave over the shack. They love the book, which promotes deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, not everybody who enjoyed the shack is departing from the faith and walking away from God. But people don't usually wake up one morning and say, I'm walking away from Christ. Through the years, they've been walking away from him and his teachings step by step, and soon enough, they find themselves departed. So we must be careful, my friends, to cling to the truth. Paul's next line is sobering. It may actually make you uncomfortable, in part because of how it plays out in our day and the application of this. Listen to how Paul said, Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons come through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He said that about people inside the church. False teachers are insincere liars with seared consciences who love to define godliness by man's works and not God's grace. False teachers can be intelligent, likable, popular, and eloquent. They can know their Bibles really well, better than us, teach true things, and they can hold respected positions in the church. But deep down, they are hypocritical liars with cauterized consciences. Paul wasn't talking about satanic or pagan cults. He was saying the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons were coming from teachers inside the church. Jesus was right when he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ready to eat you alive, sheep. Back in chapter 1, Paul talked about certain persons swerving from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Then he mentioned some people making shipwreck of the faith precisely because they rejected a good conscience. When the conscience becomes seared, ungodliness is tolerated, lies are advocated, heresy is promulgated, and apostasy is assimilated. Philip Reichen said, apostasy is the inevitable result of hypocrisy. Now, what false doctrines were problematic in Ephesus? We might suspect, Paul, to mention core doctrines like the divinity of Jesus Christ, or maybe the virgin birth, or maybe the miracles, the reliability of the miracles of Jesus Christ. But Paul mentioned forbidding marriage and... Uh, requiring abstinence from food we could say that's a bit more subtle it's a bit more subtle that's not going right at it I mean that that's subtle but those two things are in essence this that godliness is obtained by man's good works and not God's good grace alone through Christ alone that's ultimately what they're getting at Tons and tons of people in tons and tons of churches actually believe that they are good because of what they do or don't do, which is a violent heresy that destroys people. A violent heresy. And and verse 3 shows how slippery all of this can be. See, singleness is good. It's good. It's a good gift from God. God it provides certain blessings that marriage does not provide. Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married. But if the goodness of singleness is pushed too far into a prohibition of God's good gift of marriage, then it is a wicked false doctrine. If you don't want to get married, great, great. But celibacy doesn't make you more holy. The other example Paul gave was food. Fasting is a wonderful spiritual discipline. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Jesus and his disciples fasted, but if the goodness of fasting and self-control in eating are pushed too far into prohibitions of foods that God created to be enjoyed, then it is a wicked false doctrine. Now, if you want to be a vegetarian, I don't understand it. But God bless you. Be a vegetarian for the glory of God. Hallelujah. Eat plants. I like eating plants too, but meat is delicious. But just understand that your vegetarianism does not make you more holy, it doesn't make you more accepted in God's eyes. The false teachers in Ephesus were adding things to the gospel Jesus plus no marriage, Jesus plus stay away from those foods. That's not the gospel. Maybe these false teachers were trying to, to enforce Old Testament ceremonial laws. Those food laws that we know about that were fulfilled by Jesus and are no longer binding. Maybe they were advocating some form of Gnosticism, which considers the physical world either uh, uh, evil. But either way, they promoted asceticism. Uh, asceticism is the belief that by denying yourself material comforts and pleasures... You can obtain salvation or be holier, but better spiritual quality. And it's slippery, though. It's very slippery, my friends. Self-denial can be godly and sanctifying, but it can quickly turn into self-righteousness or asceticism where people measure holiness by what they piously avoid. Well, I'm not into that, therefore I'm holy. Legalism can also be a problem which measures holiness by law-keeping or good works. Both are related demonic doctrines. And they're all over Lancaster County. All over the place. Well, I don't do that or I don't have that or I don't wear that or I don't drink that or whatever. And because I don't, I'm godly. Because I don't, I'm accepted by God. Or, look how much I serve people. Look how much I've done in the church. Look how much, how many years I've given to all of these good things to God. And because of that, I'm holy. I'm holy. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel says that none of us are holy, but Christ alone is. And because of his righteousness imputed to God's people through faith, they are rendered holy by a holy God. We have a holy position before our Father. He sees us as holy. Now, there, there are good reasons to reject certain things. Now, even for certain times that we could otherwise be totally free to enjoy. That's good sometimes. The problem is when abstention becomes the measure of Holiness asceticism and legalism are both straight from Satan and are damnable heresies. Damnable heresies. They're demonic. To say that we are justified by faith and something we do, Jesus plus something else, is utter self-righteousness and a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I read verse 3, I think of Roman Catholicism which forbids priests to marry and requires all Catholics to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and every Friday of the Lenten season. It's not suggested as a pathway to, you know, greater devotion or whatever. It's not. It's uh, it's required. Required. Folks, those are the two exact deceitful spirits and teachings of demons that Paul mentioned. Different time, different group, at the same point. I think about many Christians who uh, abstain from alcohol. That's a perfectly, hear me clear, that is a perfectly legitimate conviction to hold. Perfectly legitimate. However, if abstainers begin to measure their godliness by their abstention or impose their conviction on others, it is adding to the gospel and crosses the fence of godly self-denial into the pasture of demonic false doctrine. Fine line sometimes, real fine line. In Mark 7, 19, maybe one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Jesus declared all foods clean. In Acts 10, Jesus told Peter to eat animals that were forbidden in the Old Testament law. Jesus has liberated us, my friends. We are completely free. He fulfilled the ceremonial law, and now we are totally free to eat bacon for the glory of God. Hallelujah, put a couple more strips on my plate, please. And if you look at verse three, you'll see that it's those who believe and know the truth that understand this. This is actually one of the the things that atheists and people against scripture point to. Hey, what about that Old Testament thing that you're not living by? They don't understand. They, They don't know the truth. Those who get this who know the freedom of Christ, they know and believe the truth. You have to believe. You have to know the gospel to know how to enjoy God and his good and holy gifts with much gratitude. You have to know the gospel. Friends, considering how crafty Satan and his teachers are and how inconspicuous false doctrine can be, how do you know that you won't succumb to false doctrine, depart from the Christian faith, and walk away from God? What's going to protect you? I heard it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And I've got some really, really good news for you. Jesus protects you from departing from the faith through your spirit-given belief and knowledge of the truth. Though people inside the church will depart from the faith, Jesus will protect you with the truth so that you can revel in God and his good gifts with much gratitude for his glory. Think of the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is what? It's the word of God. Jesus protects you with the truth in you. Now, I say spirit-given belief and knowledge of the truth. I word it that way because Scripture is clear that faith and the knowledge of the truth is a gift, gifts given to us by God. That's where I'm getting that. Uh, Jesus is the truth. He's a precious gift. So when he redeems us, he puts his spirit of truth in us, and that spirit is a fierce defender against error. He goes to work for you to defend you and your mind. In John 14, uh, Jesus told his disciples that the Father would give them another helper who is the spirit of truth. And Jesus added, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And Jesus meant forever. He's gonna be in you forever. You're gonna be united to the spirit of truth forever. As you believe and as you know the truth, It is the spirit of truth that helps you, upholds you, keeps you, empowers you, leads you, and adheres you to the truth. The gospel is so good. It is so good because it says that Jesus is the truth who prevents us by his power, by his grace, from walking away. He protects us. That union with him will not be broken. He paid for us, he wants us, he will protect us, and he will have us. It is his will. The gospel should give you great confidence. It should give you assurance because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Psalm 43 says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Do you understand that the truth is taking us to God? 1 Timothy 3 talked about overseers, and as pastor, Timothy was to teach sound biblical doctrine. In, in that light, sometimes check out Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. You really need to, to, to meditate on that. It talks about God giving the church pastors and teachers so that you will not be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God designed biblical preaching in local churches to keep his children in the faith. Do you know how perilous it is to neglect the preaching of God's word in the sacraments? Man, if you only knew what power happens through preaching, you wouldn't. God's keeping you in the faith with the truth of his word. Revisit the mystery of godliness in verse 16. That gospel, that Christ protects you. Perhaps this little weird rhyme that I wrote will help you in some odd way. As you uphold the gospel for the world to see, the gospel keeps you safe from dreadful apostasy. Jesus comforts you by saying, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing Absolutely nothing. So your union with Christ and your union with the truth is what keeps you from falling away. Jesus rescued you. Will he not also protect you from falling away through belief and through knowledge of the truth? And and I want you to think about this. You will not find comfort for your soul in the strength and the resolve of your faith. You won't. You will find it in the one who gives and strengthens your faith. Avail yourself of God's means of grace, specifically the preaching of God's word, prayer, and the sacraments. When you feel weak in your faith, when you are confused, when the answers escape you, Where do you turn? Where do you go? Where do you go to get everything clear? Do you try to muster up enough faith and strength from within yourself? I just have to try harder. Or do you run as fast as you possibly can to Christ to find in him the truth you desperately need? Do you try to figure it out on your own or do you race to God's word to biblical preaching to personal Bible study to Bible informed prayer to the sound biblical counsel of friends do you trust Jesus Christ to protect you through his word and sacraments if so not only is the Bible going to be of utmost importance in your life so will your local church so will your local church. Sometimes, I came from the the student ministry world, and sometimes there are books, articles written about this. We wonder why so many young people are leaving the church. Why are we surprised that they're leaving when throughout their entire life, they and their parents have infrequently gone to gospel light churches and devoted so little of themselves to biblical truth at church and at home? Why are we surprised? We have this text right here. They're going to walk away. They don't know Christ. No matter what they say, they don't know the preciousness of Jesus. So they walk. We shouldn't expect anything different. Yes, people in the church will depart from the faith, but not you, my friends, not you. As long as the word of Christ dwells in you richly and you abide in Christ's word and it abides in you and the spirit of truth is living in you, defending you against all of Satan's lies in Christ and in the truth is the safest place on planet Earth. You're safe. There's one more thing I'd like to show you. Jesus liberates you with truth to gratefully enjoy God and his good and holy gifts for his glory. This point perhaps could transform your view of Christ and Christianity. This is a very good point. I love this next point. Not that I didn't love the others, I love those too. Jesus helps us enjoy things that we otherwise would never have enjoyed on our own. Not only does Jesus give us eternal life, but he enriches this life. Now, that's not health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's the gospel. If you understand this correctly, and we must take these verses along with all the verses about suffering, which teach us that suffering is a good gift of God, meant for our joy. And that's hard for us. We just want the good things. So don't detach this from all the stuff in Scripture about suffering being a good gift. That's for another sermon, however. Don't miss verse 3 and 4. When false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from food, both of which were created by God for our pleasure, who is it that receives these pleasures with gratitude, with freedom and gratitude? Those who believe and know the truth. That's significant. Believing and knowing the truth liberates you to cast off the burdens of asceticism and legalism and to receive and enjoy God and his good gifts to the fullest. Uh, Jesus calls you to enjoy the pleasures of God and his good gifts in a way which elicits gratitude in you unto the glory of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, this is where my sick mind goes. This does not entitle you to smoke weed. Just saying, I thought of it. This does not entitle you to gorge yourself at buffets, This does not entitle you to offend your weaker brothers and sisters or to resent God in suffering. This does not pertain to the abuse of God's good gifts. What Paul is saying is that what God created for our enjoyment is really, really, really good. And we should enjoy it a lot with Thanksgiving for the glory of God. We can get married. We can enjoy our spouses. We can enjoy sexual fulfillment. We can enjoy children and grandchildren. We can eat steak and bacon and buffet food. And as we enjoy it, our heart must sing, Thank you, God, for your incredible grace to me. Thank you, God, for these thrilling pleasures that I don't deserve. As I savor this bacon-wrapped sirloin, I love you more and more, God, for who you are and what you have done. It is your grace. False doctrine cheats us from that closeness to God and his delights. It is full-bodied Christianity that teaches us how to have great pleasure in God and in his wonderful blessings and gifts. Word of God in verse 5 may refer back to Genesis 1 where God declared over and over that His creation is good. Verse 5 at least hints at that, but scholars are all over the place on this, and so uh, in in verse 5 can be understood in various ways. But the, the, the Spirit teaches us through God's Word, through sacred Scripture, how to enjoy God and His good gifts with much thankfulness. God's gifts are made holy. They're actually made sacred. It is a sacred thing to eat fresh watermelon or berries or deep fried turkey with prayerful gratitude to God. Prayerful gratitude to God. As you savor the food, your heart should be worshiping God for his kindness and grace to you. Because as Paul said, you are receiving the delight from him. His grace is evident in his creation giving you enjoyment. Thanksgiving is not simply just this feeling of the heart. It's actually that, but it's more than that. It's when that feeling overflows into an expression of gratitude to God, prayers of gratitude to God. The word Eucharistia means expressions of gratitude or the act of giving thanks. When you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he rescued you from your sin and the judgment of God through the cross and promises each of his children eternal life in his resurrection. When you receive that gospel by faith, trusting that Jesus is your life and salvation, pleasure takes on new significance in how you experience it. You enjoy things with a heart set on Christ. It's not taking you away from him. It's fueling your joy in him because he's the giver. When you prayerfully and you thankfully and you faithfully receive God's good gifts, they enhance your enjoyment of God because he is the one giving the gifts. He is the one delighting your heart. He is the source of all good things. Jesus gives us his truth to liberate us, to enjoy God in his good created pleasures and without truth, we will misunderstand pleasure and we will abuse God's good gifts to our own peril. We're gonna mess it all up unless the truth is in us. So how can you avoid departing from the Christian faith and leaving God? First, cling to Christ by faith. Cling to Christ by faith. Cling to his word. Cling to his truth. Cling to his scripture. And as you cling, and by his grace he clings to you, enjoy God's good gifts to the fullest, trusting that your father gives you these pleasures because your father loves you. And you belong to him, and he loves you. He's going to take care of you. You are safe in your father's hands. So enjoy him, enjoy his good gifts with much gratitude, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so kind to us to communicate your word that we know we don't have to be ascetics that just say, well, we need to not enjoy anything. Put on the frown and glorify God. That, that's just not Christianity. You've given us amazing... Things On this earth to enjoy you've created them good you've pronounced them good and yes because of sin we just confuse this stuff and so uh, some of your very good things we abuse but God help us by Christ and by the spirit of truth in us to lead us in how to enjoy you and how to enjoy your good gifts for your glory God thank you for taste and smell and hearing and sight and whatever other senses I'm missing. Um, God, thank you for the pleasures of eating. Thank you for the pleasures of marriage. Uh, God, we, we love them, but may we never elevate the gifts above the giver. I pray that we value you more than anything else and that we would interpret your gifts rightly. They're from your hand for our pleasure, and if you take them, you are still good because no one can take Christ, the greatest pleasure, from us. Help us to keep that balance and that discernment by knowing and believing the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.